Yeah. Yeah. All right, y'all. Let's. Uh, we are ready to, to roll. I think, if you don't mind. Um. You want to close the doors if possible. ahead and start with a prayer. In the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Mm-hmm. Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Holy bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. It is not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. So, uh, did everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Great. Ready for this all to be over with? So just a couple of, of notes before. Um, uh, well, th- first of all, I was out of town the whole entire time, so I didn't get to do a lot. So everybody got a 10 on their paper who turned it in. Their paper, their little uh, thing. I didn't even have a chance to look at it. I just gave everybody a 10. I'm merciful. I was away from my computer for most of the time and had different stuff. I'm either going to later today or at least by Wednesday send or put on Google Classroom a link for the class evaluation. Uh, they just want you to evaluate the class. I'm sure you're doing it all of them. Uh, Dr. Maloney is very insistent that everyone evaluates the class. But when you go online to evaluate it, you have to log in with your NDS email. I'm just telling you what you're supposed to do. So, but I'll put the link in Google Classroom. I'm not going to email it to y'all. So just make sure that you, you use that. Also, did any of you get to see the exam prep stuff that I sent? So this is basically it. So we're going to have the exam on the 9th. I think it's at 9 o'clock in the morning. Is that what? It, I forgot what time. Posted out there. Huh? It's posted across from your factory. Yeah, so that exam time. So basically, I know there's a lot of material we've been given. If you were wise and prudent, you would focus on those areas. Now, what, I haven't made the exam yet, um, and someone asked earlier whether or not it would be primarily writing stuff out. And, and yet, it will be. Uh, it'll be like short answers, essays. Now, the question is some English not as the first language. I understand that. Uh, I will talk to, to Dr. Kim or Ms. Navarro, what are the, the protocols for people who have exams like that, and they're not the, the primary language. What are some ways we can help? I will be merciful, but as I said, I studied in Rome for five years in a second language. So if I can do it, I bet you can do it. I firmly believe you can. So that argument is one that does not hold a tremendous amount of weight with me because I'm pretty merciful. Uh, so I will be merciful. I'm going to do what I can to help. Uh, so I, I feel your pain. I know what it's like. I did it for five years. I had to write papers in another language. I had to give oral exams in another language. I had to do all that stuff. And I made it through. You can too. It's going to be awesome. Uh, so I would just focus on those things. And I guess I've been saying, I'm not going to throw you any curveballs as much as I would like to. It would be a lot of fun to see you sweat. But because, because I'm a nice guy, I'm not going to. My concern is not. I believe in academics, and I want you to, to be able to, 
to be intelligent enough to be able to know and communicate certain truths, but I want you to know the essentials to be able to communicate it uh, to your parishioners and the people you encounter. So I'm not here, I don't need you to, to sort, to cite some footnote from some obscure papal document. That is not, you know, I don't need that. I don't need you to be able to quote Aquinas to me in Latin. That's not necessary. You can do it, it's impressive, but I need you to know the essential stuff. So even the exam questions that I put there sort of, I think, reflect a lot of the essential things. Uh, but it shouldn't, there'll be some writing, but it shouldn't be that difficult. You'll you'll not come out hating me or life. You may hate life, but get over it. It's cross. So today we're going to look at as our penultimate class. I uploaded the stuff on homosexuality, but we're going to look at. Do you have any questions from the lesson? If anybody watched it, probably no one did. So I understand. Do you have any questions from that? Huh? Oh, good. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Can I give you a quiz on it? <laughs> I understand it was Thanksgiving, but I have, I have to give you all, I do think I put some decent stuff on there for recording it. It's just, it's, you'll have to have 28 classes, and I'm a stickler for doing 20 classes. And it's also important for me, because now, for next year, I'll have everything done. And I won't have to scramble like I had to scramble for today's class. But we're going to make it work. So I'm just being honest. So, huh? You bring wine to this class? Not, it's too early in the morning. I had wine for that last class. I was, I was. Saint Peter Webb occasion. Huh? Saint Peter Webb occasion. It was a, uh, yeah. I was staying with some friends and they had a bottle of wine. So I said, ah, why not? I wasn't recording the class at nine o'clock in the morning. It was in the afternoon. So hopefully it made it better. Man, I had those guys. If they watched it, they were cleaning the windows of the of the apartment, and and so it was kind of freaking me out. <laughs> so what we're doing today is is eschatology. And the reason that we are, are going to look at eschatology <coughs> and sort of sexual ethics and the theology of the body within the context of that is because John Paul II does. Um, for those of you who may have perused the, the, the readings, um, even though I didn't post it earlier, but you know you can probably find it in Theology of the Body, he calls or he looks at eschatology, he looks at the resurrection in heaven as what he calls the third part of the triptych. The triptych of the establishing an adequate anthropology. Because, uh, and this is why I could have done this earlier, but I figured it would be better to do it later since it sort of falls in this chronological order. And it, and it doesn't necessarily have a bearing on practical sexual ethics as much as a deepened understanding of the human person. So what is the, in establishing adequate anthropology in John Paul II's theology body, what is the first part of the triptych? Y'all gotta know this. The three parts, the three stages. What is the first analysis that he offers in trying to understand who the human person is? No. Prelapsarian man and woman. Before the fall. Before the fall. So that's the whole part we looked at sacrament of the body, the gift of self, the generative meaning. The second part of the triptych is man fallen and redeemed in Christ. So it's the phenomenon of shame and, and hiding, a loss of original innocence, but then redeemed in Jesus and living a, a life of purity of heart. 
of not being suspicious of the heart. And then now it's the third part. It's the resurrection. It's eschatological man and woman. So it's kind of like where we're going. And, and we're establishing the dignity of the human person. The first part of the triptych, why? Because we're creating the image and likeness of God. The second part of the triptych, the dignity of the human person, because they are redeemed in Christ. The third part of the triptych is the dignity because where we're destined, what our telos is, where we're, what's our final cause, where we're going. So if we are destined to have our bodies raised from the dead and to live in this communion with the Trinity for all eternity, well, that really establishes we have a great dignity. You can look at something and say, well, here's this, I don't know, here's this book. Well, the book has certain value, but if I know this book is destined to go to the king or to some very important person, well, it takes on a greater value because of where it's going. And it's something that we can understand as Christians and as Catholics, we're going somewhere. We're homo viator. We're, we're, we're heading towards heaven. And so we need to establish that hope, not only that when things get bad, that we believe, of course, that the Lord is still in charge, but also that our body has value. And so this whole section is focused really around two different parts. One is looking at the body as we imagine it would be when it is resurrected. And so we can do that by, of course, looking at qualities of Christ's body, the description of the resurrection. But John Paul II says here towards the end of the section that we can use our own experience just as we he's established that he's using his own experience to understand what the body may have been like before the fall. We can understand what the perfected body will look like because of our own experience. Of course, we know it's going to be incorruptible. It will not be impassable. We will not be able to suffer in the body. Have you all had a class on eschatology of the resurrection yet? Do you all have a class on eschatology of the resurrection? Not really? Yeah, so your body is going to be perfected. You know, it's... it's, it's it's not going to die again. It's going to uh, not going to be able to suffer. And of course, our resurrection is something promised in the Old Testament. Uh, towards the end, towards the Maccabees, we begin to understand the resurrection. The idea, though, that all of Israel was going to resurrect. But then you had Christ come, who resurrected as the first fruits, his risen body, which still had the wounds which we'll look at in a little bit. Um, and then we had the promise that is sort of elaborated very much in Paul of our one day sharing in that resurrection. That we will rise to, the, to be judged, uh, and we will, if we are just, we will share in that resurrection and live in our bodies for all eternity in heaven. And something so crucial, you know, there's something, and I think it was one of those Flannery O'Connor quotes I gave you earlier this semester. If we believe that the body will be risen from the dead and you're going to have your personal body for all eternity, the body means something. You're not going to become an angel. You're going to hear that a lot. Oh, my, my, my husband died and, and he's an angel in heaven. No, no he's not. 
my little child died and she got her wings. No, no, she didn't. You don't need to tell the people that. Particularly if their children died, don't, don't, don't be prudent. Don't necessarily do that. Just say, well, we're, we really hope they're in heaven. Uh, but no, you're not going to become an angel. It's like you're going to become a zebra. No, it's a completely different <laughs> entity. You're not going to become something else. You're going to remain a human. But as John Paul II says, and this is maybe what, what, what they think, what he describes as the spiritualization of the body. So when we die, body goes in the ground, your soul will go to judgment, which we'll talk about in a little bit, about what that judgment will look like. And then, in the resurrection, the souls will be rejoined to their bodies, and you will go to the resurrection of the glorified, or the resurrection of the damned, where you will go with your body uh, into, into hell, um, into whatever this is, which we will maybe talk about a little bit later on. But what's going to happen is John Paul II spends a lot of the time in theology of the body talking about the spiritualization of the body. It's not that the body will become spiritual, you're still going to have your body, but it's going to be so perfected and infused with the spirit that the opposition between the body and the soul that we experience, the fallenness of the flesh, quite often we do the things that we do not want to do, is going to end. That there's going to be this perfect alignment between the body and the soul in the kingdom of heaven where the body will live fully and freely and be guided by the spirit or the spiritual dimension of man. The spiritual dimension meaning the soul or the higher faculties. And so, what John Paul II says is spiritualization of his somatic nature, that is by another system of powers within man, the resurrection signifies a new submission of the body to the spirit. So yeah, there's going to be an influx. You're, the, the spirit is the one that perfects Christ's body. The spirit is the one that is poured down to bring about the resurrection. And so we're going to have this new outpouring of the spirit, a new system of powers that are going to help our bodily part be in submission, not in opposition to the soul. And so in 67.1, John Paul II says, eschatological man will be free from this opposition that we experience because of concupiscence, because of the fall, even if we're living a life of grace. In the resurrection, the body will return to perfect unity and harmony with the spirit. Man will no longer experience the opposition between what is spiritual and what is body in him. So Paul talks about the life of the spirit versus life of the flesh. Where is John Paul II really getting all of this from? Well, I think, again, I think he's getting it partially from tradition. You know, just the understanding that you can look at Aquinas, you can look at some of the other teachings of the church, where you try to describe what the resurrected body would be like. And again, I think it's this idea that the body is not bad, but what we experience on earth is that conflict that somehow it's going to be in perfect alignment. But I do think a lot of it comes from his idea of experience. What do we experience here? We experience the opposite of it, and what we can imagine Christ's body would be like and heaven would be like would be that perfect unity, where if I want to resist the temptation, I resist the temptation. 
if I give myself, I give myself fully. So I, I really do think he's just sort of almost positing the same things that man or woman would have been like before the fall until the kingdom of heaven. Because it's going to be, yeah, the restoration of that, but at a higher level, as we'll see, because of our union with Christ. Spiritualization, he says, signifies not only that the spirit will master the body, again, this idea of self-mastery that we had talked about, which is a struggle on earth because of virtue, but I would say that it will also fully permeate the body and the powers of the spirit will permeate the energies of the body. He talks about powers and energies a lot. So it's sort of like, let's say that your spirit, I'm using in a certain sense soul and spirit interchangeably here, even though it's not super clear what John Paul II means here, and also in other places it's not perfectly clear what he means, but the, the spirit infuses it in a, in a new degree. There's a, like, I don't know, it's like your body is a sponge and your soul is the water. Here somehow it takes in more water. It becomes fuller. And it, 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 it fully informs what is, what is in the body and how the body acts in heaven. But because of that, and I think this is where he's really leaning into, that the body and the spirit work together, that there is a perfection of the spousal meaning. So he does say that in heaven, you know, unlike some sort of a Gnostic or Manichaeistic approach to things, we still will have our body, and our body will be sexed. Although, as we know, you're going to keep your sexual difference, but will you need sexual difference in heaven? Do you need sexual difference? No, because there's no procreation. There's no marriage or giving in marriage because there's not going to be any need for new souls or new bodies. We're not going to, you know, have that going on. That's for this earth here. But it doesn't mean that when you get into heaven, you become some androgynous creature. The idea, the sort of myth of the Adam and Eve being one, and then the fall made them split into man and woman, and then in heaven we get back to this androgynous creature. No, we do not believe that. That is not what we are advocating. <clears throat> and so you're going to keep your sexual difference, and just like on earth, for those who choose celibacy or chosen for celibacy, you learn to give yourself in this virginal way. He talks about the virginal meaning of the body in this celibate way. That's what it's going to be like in heaven, but perfected. And because of the fact that there's no opposition between the body and the spirit, between the flesh and the body and, and the spirit, the freedom of the gift will be perfected. We've talked a lot about that. After the fall, before the fall, man and woman could give of themselves in this free way because they mastered themselves. They had control of themselves. And because of grace, they're able to pour themselves into others and to be able to live that perfect freedom with the gift and the community that came from it. But in the next life, we're going to be able to experience that because of the spiritualization of the body, because of the way that those spiritual faculties will be, will be perfected. So when we give ourselves to God, when we give ourselves to the community of the saints, when we love others, because remember, gift itself is an expression of love, and heaven is going to be the perfection of what that love is, then there's going to be a great freedom of the gift, because we will have, that in, because of the new infused powers and the spiritualization of the body, uh, a much greater mastery over who we are.
Make sense? But he says, though, and this is where it gets into a lot of, I think, really interesting reflections. We're going to have the spiritualization of the body, which leads to this perfection or fulfillment of the spousal meaning. But where is it, or in what way, will we primarily be giving of ourselves and fulfilling the spousal meaning of the body in heaven? Not marriage, because you're not going to be married. Where? Huh? Beatific vision. God, yeah. So this is what I, I, I we can get into some, John Paul II, I think, does it further the teaching, but he enhances it by bringing this idea in. So we talk about heaven. The normal term that we use is beatific vision. So once again, we keep talking about the gaze and, and viewing and seeing all year or all semester. So in heaven is primarily for us described as vision, seeing God face to face and being transfixed by his beauty, the eternal contemplation of his beauty. And that's wonderful. Does that excite people today? Not really. It's kind of boring, static. It's like, oh, I don't want to walk in a painting on for all eternity. It's boring. Beauty, of course, maybe needs to speak to people more. But it's almost like, well, here's the Trinity, and here is the human person, and basically up, I'm looking at the Trinity for all eternity, beatific vision. Now we know that, of course, th there is a developed theology of this, the theology of divinization, the fact that by looking at God, we can sort of tap into his intellect and his essence and to see things as God sees things. But what John Paul II is doing, and again, he's not, this is, what he's advocating is something that has been taught before, but I think he's using kind of a, a newer, fresher language that instead of it being almost static, where here, I am looking at God, then just visiting him, it really highlights ec the ecstasy, the ecstatic nature, to go outside of stasis, to go outside of yourself. When we talk about heaven, there's ecstasy. What does that mean? It's not a drug. It is the going outside of yourself. And so here, what you're describing is the spouse to the body and the gift of self within the context of the beatific vision, which is we are able to give of ourselves fully to God. And so it's the perfection of the spousal meaning is, is almost that wedding supper of the Lamb, where we give ourselves to God fully. And then the God receives the gift, but then gives himself back to us. Now the truth is, he's the initiator, we're not. And I think it's something that as much as we, we've talked a little bit about gift and receptivity, when we get to heaven, I don't think it's going to be gift as the primary, it's going to be receptivity. That God gives himself to us in the capacity that we can receive him, and then we receive it in our bodies, give ourselves back, and then the cycle goes on forever, for all eternity. So it's this 
idea of heaven as active, as constant movement. Now, you would say not like busy, busy, busyness, but actualization of potency. God's perfectly actualized. And so we're constantly giving ourselves to the God and him giving himself to us in this ecstatic movement that does produce beatitude. It produces joy. It produces heaven. It produces these wonderful experiences. And that is the spousal meaning of the body, which thus leads to what he mentions there as divinization, which is the traditional teaching. The East calls it theosis. That uh, Orthodox theologian who came a few weeks ago mentioned a little bit of this, where if God gives himself to us, and we receive his essence in that way, we become divinized. We become like God. We don't become gods, but we receive his nature and the capacity that we can receive it. And there's the transformation that happens. And then we give ourselves back to God. So it is the process of divinization, of becoming like God. Now, this all sounds great. And John Paul II also put there that it does lead to communion. This communion with God comes with the gift, receptivity, communion, leads to divinization. It's just in a certain sense that when a man and woman give themselves to each other, the two become one. Here, though, it's a little more intense because when God gives himself to you, it changes you in a way that while you maintain your own personhood, you don't become a, person, a different person, you don't become the fourth person of the Trinity, it's more intense. It transforms us in a way that, let's say, marriage doesn't. But all this sounds great, but what's missing in this explanation of spiritualization of the body, but particularly here of this divinization and the spousal gift in heaven, what is missing? Another people in heaven. Okay, yes, we're going to get to that. But in this description, why is it lacking? I mean, there's no procreative dimension? Yeah, but why else? There's no body. There's no, like, physical body. Okay, well, okay, we're getting there. Because you're going to, when you die, and you get to heaven, God willing, you'll participate in this in, in your soul. But what we're talking about here is heaven after the resurrection. That you'll be participating in your body. How is it possible to participate in this in your body? There's one question, but there's another question too. What's, what's, what, what are we missing here? What we're missing here is a dimension that John like it doesn't fully get into. is you're not just giving yourself to God as this monadic entity. You are entering into 
the gift, person, communion that has existed for all eternity in the Trinity. So it's not God here. You're entering into a communion that already exists. So when we get to heaven, yes, there's to be a big vision, but as we see, it's ecstatic. There's a participation of gift of self and the spousal meaning the body and the receptivity of the gift, which divinizes. But we're actually in your body entering into a process that is already happening. <coughs> How are we inserted into this gift and communion of the Trinity? How are we inserted into it from a theological perspective? Yeah, well, through Christ. Yes, Christ the head, we are his body. So it's because of the incarnation, Christ is the head, we are the body. We are through Christ's humanity, because he's the first fruits, and I resurrected the body. We are inserted into this process of gift, life, and love of the Trinity. And so what John of the Cross talks about is that we participate in the spiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've had your Trinitarian theology, haven't you all? Mm -hmm. From all eternity, Father gives himself to Son. Son receives the gift. Father generates the Son. Son receives the gift, gives it back, and from that, oh, sorry, spirates the Holy Spirit. Spirates the Holy Spirit. And so this, of course, has been going on and continues to go on for all eternity. The incarnation is the Son, of course, becoming man. But if there is death, resurrection, ascension to heaven, humanity, human nature, is inserted into that spiration. So when we die and we are resurrected, because we're in with Christ, we get to participate in the ecstatic gift of self of the Father and the Son and the spiration of the Spirit. And so that's why heaven is not boring. You know, you get to participate in the spiration of the third person of the Trinity because of your union with Christ in the resurrection. That should be pretty great. Talk about ecstasy. This is what we're, we're discussing here. This is why uh, it, it's so important. Um, so, von Balthasar did, did his, his theodrama where he talks about looking at God or man within the context of the good. And theodrama five, he gets into his eschatology. It's the weak link, in my opinion, because he. He relies a lot on, on, on private revelation, which I don't think would be a wise choice to do. But he does explain this well. I'm going to give you this quote. For spiritual creatures, life in God, eternal life in God, cannot consist merely in beholding God. Even though, yeah, we can talk about vision and receptivity and seeing. In the first place, God is not an object, but a life that is going on eternally and yet ever new. God, God's not the painting that you were just beholding for all eternity. He is three persons, life, gift, love for all eternity. Secondly, the creature is meant ultimately to live not over and against God, but in him. 
That's what this means. It's not, oh, here's God, I'm looking at him. No, you're in, you're in this vibration of the spirit. And you do so in your body. And it goes on for all of eternity. And in doing so, you become divinized. Because you are, you're, you're receiving back the gift of the spirit in this whole process. And I'm not a Trinitarian theologian, but y'all studied all this and how it works. We get to participate in this. This is what the whole destiny is, and you experience it in your body because of that. Now, Kong said, you're right. This is um, the ultimate goal. This would be the vision. Once you got this, you need nothing else. Do you still have your freedom? Yes. But can you, that's a question that I've gotten before. Can you choose again? If heaven's not free, I can't choose against it. Why would you choose against it? That's the thing. When we are drawn into and so enamored by some love or by something beautiful, yes, I am free to leave you, but why would you? So God is not forcing us into this. We're drawn into this. We want to be there. We don't want to be doing anything else. But we are also connected to Christ the head because we are part of the body. We're connected to the communion of saints. So it's not just, oh, look, it's just me and Jesus and God in heaven. All the rest of you all can whatever. <laughs> we will be in heaven with everyone else. Now, like, I'll be honest. I kind of freak out sometimes thinking I'm going to get to heaven, God willing, one day, and there are like three billion people there. I don't like going to football games where there are 70,000 people. Three billion people? Oh, freaks me out. How many of you ever thought about that before? Yeah, I just don't like that. I did that. Too many people. Too many people. Crowd, like you're just crammed in the crowd. Yeah, you're not, I'm not Jehovah's Witness, so crammed in the crowd, freaking out. But you're going to be connected to everyone else, too, through that connection that we have to the Trinity. And so John Paul II talks about the perfect intersubjectivity. You still remain, you still be, you're still your own subject, you're still your own person, but there's somehow this deep communion with everyone else because of your connection to God. And so in heaven, you won't be married to your spouse but assuming your spouse is there with you, you'll know your spouse better than you would on earth because you will know your spouse as God knows your spouse. You'll have a deeper union with them than you would ever in the sexual genital union because your union with them will be through the union of the persons of the Trinity. But it also means that you will know everyone else in heaven better than you would ever know your best friend. Almost immediately, it would seem, because you will know them as God knows them. Because you're going to have access to this beatific knowledge. Now, how do you communicate this? How does it experience? We don't really fully know. Christ, Christ had, y'all learned that we believe Christ had the beatific vision. This was the big stink when I was there, I was in seminary. Do y'all get into that? Did Christ have beatific knowledge in his humanity? 
y'all y'all were taught that y'all were taught that he does, correct? Huh? Liberto would believe that he does. Yeah, yeah. But so you're good, you're gonna because we don't have access to that. Mary didn't have access to that. That's why that's why Jesus didn't have faith. Because you don't have faith if you have vision. You may not be able to communicate the vision. The vision may be experienced differently. Now, how did Christ say, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Well, we're not going to get into all that. We could, but this is not the proper time in this class. So you're going to know people as God knows them. And there's going to be this perfect intersubjectivity, but still no marriage. Because marriage, why will there be no marriage in heaven? Because there's no need to. There's no sign value. Right now, marriage is a sacrament. It's a sign that points to a greater reality, but you're going to be participating in the greater reality, the perfection of the Imago Dei, Trinitatis, you'll be inserted into the mystery. And number two, there are no need for kids. So the generative meaning isn't, isn't necessary because there's going to be a cutoff of the amount of persons or beings that are in heaven. So what is the great analogy that is sort of subsumed to be able in scripture to describe heaven in the book of Revelation? Primary, primary analogy. The wedding, feast. the wedding feast, yes. You can go to Revelation 19, where John you know, sees the, 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 the wedding supper of the lamb. His bride is ready, and she has been able to dress herself in dazzling white linen. So it's the wedding supper. And so this is the real sort of fulfillment of everything we've talked about, that just as man and woman's union is the beginning of scripture, it's also where we're going. Somehow, heaven and the union of the church with Christ and the spiration of the Trinity and all of this kind of good stuff all finds its, clima its climatic moment or its perfect expression in the spousal analogy. So right then, we talked about if we discard the spousal analogy, we discard sexual difference, we discard a lot of moral teaching on earth, well, you discard your basic fundamental understanding of what heaven is and how we experience heaven and how we can describe heaven. Now, another question, which, of course, y'all are going to get a lot, what do you do when the little boy comes up and he's crying and he says, Father, my little doggy Fido just died. I can't wait to see him in heaven. He won't be there. Huh? <laughs> Your dog's gonna hell. And is that what you're gonna tell him? No. Okay, I'm not I'm not saying what you should do pastorally, but you you are you gonna have dogs in heaven? No. No. Now there, there's debates about this. C.S. Lewis talks about how he humanized animals and stuff like that. I, I, right, we do not believe that there will be dogs in heaven, but people are going to want you to bury their dogs. Some of, some of, I was talking to a priest yesterday. He talked about how there was a man who wanted, when he died, to be buried with his dog. And I thought how, whether or not you allowed him to be buried with the dog or not, how crazy that would be on the resurrection day. You're gonna resurrect your body and there's a dog, rotting dark corpse in your, on your, leading, oh, it'd freak you out. Because he thinks the dog's gonna come back. It's not. 
Now they may say, Father, I'll give you a $50,000 donation if you let me bury, your, your, my, bury my dog. Then you might reconsider it. Take that to prayer. Um, have you all ever, but you know, also the thing is what people love, have you all encountered Rainbow Bridge, the Rainbow Bridge poem? Okay, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to see people, let me go ahead and do this. I haven't done this in a long time. Let me go ahead and, the Rainbow Bridge, I can promise you, is going to be something that you will encounter in your time as a priest. It is a poem that touches the hearts of so many people. It makes people cry. Would you like me to read it for you, my poetic rendition? Just this side of heaven is a place called Rainbow Bridge. When an animal dies that has been especially close to someone here, that pet goes to Rainbow Bridge. There are meadows and hills for all of our special friends so they can run out and, and play together. There's plenty of food, water and sunshine, and our friends are warm and comfortable. All the animals who had been ill and old are restored to health and vigor. Those who are hurt or maimed are made whole and strong again, just as we remember them in our dreams of days and times gone by. The animals are happy and content, except for one small thing. They miss, each of them miss someone very special to them who they had left behind. They'll run and play together, but the day comes when, when suddenly one stops and looks into the distance, way into the distance. His bright eyes are intent. His eager body quivers. Suddenly he begins to run from the group, flying over the green grass, his legs carrying him faster and faster. You, you have been spotted. And when you and your special friend finally meet, you cling together in joyous reunion, never to be parted again. The happy kisses rain upon your face, your hands again caress the beloved head, and you look once more into the trusting eyes of your pet, so long gone from your life, but never absent from your heart. Then you cross Rainbow Bridge together. The end. <laughs> of course, this, this is very, like, canine exclusive. <laughs> what if you had a pet snake? Is it going to slither to you? Cats surely are not going to do this. Huh? What's a fish? This is, this is a bigoted poem, I guess. I don't know, but anyhow. You, you are going to have people who eat this stuff up. Just, huh? Yeah. Oh, look. They have. Oh, go, go look at Rainbow Bridge, and they see the pictures of the dogs and the rainbows. So yeah. So again, but like, I was. Why do people love? We love animals, and I think it was Aristotle talked about. We we can look at a society and know how they how they treat others by how they treat their animals, which I don't think is necessarily the case in our country, our world. Why do people love animals so much? And I talked to some psychologists about this, like the cat lady. 
there are a lot of people, and again, I love animals. I'm all for animals, I love them. I, I like to look at cute animal videos. I love red pandas, I love all that kind of stuff. But there are some people who really can't relate well to other human beings. And a lot of them maybe have mental issues, loneliness, whatever, and so they can relate to animals. Anyhow, that just gave me an experience of being able to read Rainbow Bridge to you. So thank you for giving me that chance. It really spoke to my heart. <laughs> but, so, but the thing is, is I, I want to make a point that John Paul II doesn't necessarily make, but I think it is, is crucial here. And it's something that I will talk about in my introduction class. Remember when y'all talked in the introduction to morality? What, why are we moral? What is the purpose of the moral life? Why should we be moral? Aquinas says it, the Catechism says it, I think Augustine says it. What's the purpose? What's the end? Final clause, why? Because what? Didn't y'all study this? Heaven, but more specifically what? True, but we'll describe it as, as beatitude, happiness. We are moral because we want to be happy. Ultimately, like go look at the Catechism, go look at Thomas, the first question in the Prima Secundae is happiness. Now, what is happiness? Is it eating a bunch of food? No, it is friendship with and union with God that ultimately comes in heaven. But I think we've got to be careful in saying, Oh, well, yeah, I know we have the cross and we have all this stuff on earth, but ultimate happiness we know is the next life. But the thing is, is it's the exitus reditus. Heaven is broken into earth. We get to share in the spirit. We get to share and live the resurrected life here on earth. It looks a lot different than it will in heaven, but we, particularly those who are choosing or have been chosen for celibacy, get to experience the resurrection here. Beatitude here. Again, it looks different. It's not the perfection of it. But this idea that we're waiting for something in the next life, no. The kingdom of heaven is broken into the world. It exists here. Maybe in a very seminal form, maybe in a form that we can't fully see or understand, or sometimes I think it manifests itself in the exact opposite way. Christ reveals his glory where? On the cross. So quite often we'll experience grace and blessedness through suffering. But the kingdom breaks into the world, and we can share in the resurrection here. When do we begin to share in the resurrection? How do, how do we? Baptism. Baptism, yes. You're given the Spirit. And the fruits of the Spirit that flow from that, you get the Trinity living within you. Wow. You go down. Remember, you go down to the water and you come up. You've done battle with the evil one and, and the forces of, of Satan and the water and you come up in the force of chaos to order a new life and you're given the gift of the Spirit which is poured out upon us, poured out upon the church as a result of the resurrection. And it opens up the way to eternal life. The ability to, to, to live through grace the life of the Spirit the resurrected life, the life of the spiritualized body here on this earth, not just in the next life. And, and this is something that kind of ties in the stuff we've talked about. If this is the case, then how is that manifested? Yes, it's manifested sometimes through suffering. It's manifested the cross. But it's going to be experienced, I think, through joy. 
and these different fruits of the Spirit that manifest. And this is why, particularly, I think, it's got to be important for celibates. You know, you don't, granted, we have a rough time sometimes, I understand that, but if we're living heaven on earth, and we're pointing to people what heaven is like, if we're not joyful, then guess what? We're, we're not doing anybody any good. Now, people are going to express joy in different ways. I understand that. But the, the, the mean, the sour celibate is not really living beatitude on earth. To be able to somehow live that life in the spirit, even when things are rough, things do not seem to be going well, that we can still maintain joy and because of this great childlike trust we have in God. But not only can we experience that joy because of our communion with God through prayer and the sacraments, we can start living in communion now. And this is something that, I guess, has been really striking me lately. If we can have, not just the celibates, particularly those celibates, we can have life in the spirit now, we can experience resurrected life now, in our communion with God, we should be able to experience it in our communion with other people. So why, why does Paul talk about it? He's talking about loving your brothers and sisters, living in community, sharing, giving of yourself. Authentic community on earth, gift of self, love, communion, ought to be experienced as that perfect communion of persons. Or not perfect, but more or less perfect. Striving towards it, being intentional about it. So this, uh, this Thursday, I won't be here this weekend because I, I'm excited for the first time in two years, two and a half years, I'm going to California. Now, I'm excited because it'll be beautiful weather. I'm excited because there's an In-N-Out burger about an hour, uh, a mile away from where I'm staying, which is delicious. But I'm giving a retreat, but I'm giving it there at the Carmelite Sisters of Alhambra who are actually coming to visit us in February. One, how many of y'all do the Carmelites in Alhambra? Wonderful sisters. And so you're there, just like if you go to a community. I know it's like with y'all, a community that is living out genuine charity and love, you feel like you're in heaven. I love it over there. The sisters are so kind and so loving. Granted, they're not perfect. I know that they sometimes get mad at each other, but they're at least trying to do it. And so when you are inserted into it, like, whoa, I don't want to leave here. Um, because you just feel the love, and they're so nice and sweet to priests. It's that what that communal life ought to be. That when you're there, your experience being seen, known, and loved, you're like, whoa, this is really heaven on earth. And everybody goes to visit the Carmelites or these different wonderful religious orders. Oh, it's like heaven on earth. Have you all ever experienced that in going to some type of convent or whatever? Sister experiences all the time. It's heaven on earth. Not perfect. We, we fail. We ask for forgiveness. But this is what we should be experiencing now. And I honestly believe is what you should try to make your parish out to be. And it takes a long time to do because it's not, you just don't do it overnight. But there has to be an intentionality. I want to have perfect community. I want to create heaven on earth. I want parish to be a joyful place. So when people come in to mass, they're like, whoa, they feel welcome, they feel loved, they feel part of a greater community. And they're able to worship better. They know who they are. They don't 
They don't feel that, oh, people are judging me or whatever. That's their own insecurity, generally. So if this is the case, what we're supposed to do, and I think as priests, you're supposed to do it in your parish as imperfectly as you'll do it, where do we start doing it? Practicing, getting ready. Where, Jesse? Well, I think one of the first things you have to do is overcome the reality of sin, because you can't have sin Absolutely. You need, yes, you do. So there needs to be over, the overcoming of sin, grave sin, that divides your communion with God and with other people. So we want to overcome those things. And how, I'm not talking about how we do it. That's a different discussion. We do it through grace and response. We have to be, we have to be intentional about it. Where should we start, gentlemen? Probably right here. Right here. Right here. And it's true. I'm not saying we have a sick community here. We don't. But the thing is, is do, are we living like the Carmelites in Alhambra? Okay, we're dudes, so we're not going to be like the sisters. Okay, so we're going to do it differently. But this is where I think, uh, do we really feel, or do y'all feel that like, hey, when I, I was looking forward to coming back here because I'm going to be seen and accepted and loved and embraced and affirmed, are... Am I dreading to be here because people are going to put me down or I'm going to feel alienated or we're going to have carping criticism all the time? You know, how it's done, I don't know. I can give you a suggestion. Actually, I was talking to a sister who, she's in Tanzania. She's a servidora. And she's she pointed me to this thing called the 12 Little Virtues of St. Marceline Champagnat, who founded the Marists. Now, if you look at pictures of him, he doesn't look very affable. But then again, if I'm wearing a cassock and there's no air conditioning in France and a bunch of mosquitoes and death, I would probably be not smiling either. <laughs> but he talks about these little virtues that are necessary for living community. So it's something to consider, I think, what are we doing in our own lives, our families, in our community to really bring heaven on earth and to have that joyful thing so people feel welcomed uh, when they're here. Something to consider. It's not what we're going to discuss today, but yes. You said it was the 12 little virtues too? Marceline Champagnat. I'll post it on, on it. It's really, it was good. I, I read it, I'm like, whoa, sister, this is... And they, 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 they try their best to live those and, and, and why it's important for a community. And again, if you've been to the Servidors, or mo women really just do this better than men. I do not I think I know why, but because maybe they get formation and we don't, Dyson priests, or we do, but it's just different. It's just a different existence. Um, I think the CFRs probably do it well. Y'all do it well. Um, what do you think, sister? Give your opinion. What could we Dyson priests do better to be joyful, to be loving, and to create the, the, that environment of, of community of persons on earth? that correction in their life and their 
but it's also the receptivity of the correction. Yes. Or, yes. For not being a jerk when you correct. Like, hey, man, I know things are, are rough. You're struggling. Man, I struggle with this too. Let's talk about it. Uh, but to be able to say, yeah, you're right. I, I am struggling with this. Instead of saying, don't you judge me. I hate you. No. And particularly when it comes from criticism, not criticism, but correction, encouragement from the top down. Uh, because I think it does start here. Um, now, the problem is, is whenever I was in seminary, there was this song called, Let Us Build the City of God. You know the song? Let us build the city of God. Let our tears be turned into dancing. All right, what's the problem with that song? Huh? It's down here. We are not going to build the city of God. The city of God has already been built. Huh? Yes, it's bad. And besides the terrible song. I don't remember we used to have hand gestures for that. No, there were other ones we did. But... Oh, there's, there's different ones. His banner over me is love. But so, you're, you're, God, ha unless the, the, the Lord builds the city in vain, do the, the laborers work, or whatever, however it's quoted. We have to work towards it, but the Lord is the one who builds it. We cooperate with him in building it. So, you know, I was saying, have y'all heard the quote, don't immunitize the, es or don't immunitize the eschaton? Have y'all heard this? Don't immunitize the eschaton? So this breaks into political philosophy. You can ask uh, Father Kelly about it. To immunitize means to make present, to make imminent. The eschaton, the end of the world, the perfect society. Well, it was a political philosopher, Eric Vogelin, who came up with this phrase because he realized in Marxist political philosophy, what, what, are, what are the Marxists trying to do? Utopia. Utopia. They're trying to make heaven on earth by their own political schemes and techniques, which ends up creating hell on earth. And so Vogelin's like, don't immunitize the eschaton. You're not going to, you're not able to do it. And when you try to do it from a political means, then it's going to end up being miserable. But can we, in a certain sense, immunitize the eschaton? Yeah, we can, by cooperating and letting the Lord do it, because he's already done it. The kingdom of God exists on earth in the church. But are we living it out? And are we allowing the grace to influence and create a more just society? These are all questions to ask. But it does. It matters, because we are in our bodies. We uh, participate in the polis. We participate in the city in our bodies. And so what we experience in the church and in our own uh, existence should spill over to society. So do you all have any questions? Because I'll just, I'm going to leave a few. I love eschatology. I think it's interesting. And, and maybe I'm trying too hard to make connections. But I do have a few little reflections that I can offer that somehow connect to it, unless you'll have questions. We have a few minutes left. I know we're going to be ready to go party. We're going to go, huh? We're going to talk to the ritual ladies. First of all, why? We didn't talk a lot about Christ's resurrection, but this is all based in the resurrection of Christ's body. He, he is the perfect, perfected body. Why does Christ maintain his wounds in his body? 
I'm sure there's a zillion different answers. But why is it that he at least keeps the, the, some of the wounds? Why does he keep his wounds? No, I think you're right, and ultimately, theologically, that's right, because it is, when we have a perfected, when we keep talking about perfected body, well, Christ is a perfected body, but he still maintains wounds. So the idea of what we think perfect might be is not what it is, because if Christ maintains his wounds, these were the means, or there are signs, or sacraments, if you will, of what he did, his gift of love, in order to bring about redemption. And so what Catherine or Sienna is saying, and I think it's the, sort of a tradition, those sufferings that we may have had that we allied with Christ that were signs of our own participation in the redemption may be visible in our bodies too. But, but how do we reconcile this idea of a perfected resurrected body that still maintains scars and wounds? You know, I think it's very, I don't necessarily have an answer to this. It's something to reflect on. I agree. Yeah. What we think is perfect is not necessarily perfect. Look, here comes Treville. Treville, you got the Rona? You got the Rona? No Rona. No Rona. The Omicron? No, sir. No, good. Uh, no, yeah, that what our ideas of perfection might be and what old, and the next life. So I just think, like, when you get to heaven, we think we're going to have all these wonderful, perfected bodies. We may not. We will, but they may look a lot different than we expect. That we think we're all going to look like, you know, George Clooney and whoever else is a beautiful movie star. Maybe not. There may be a lot of, maybe you might have a big gaping head wound or something that is in heaven. And it might look a lot different than you think it'll look, which is interesting, which talks about, I think it's interesting that the givenness of the body, that there are certain parts that you're, you're, you're going to re resurrect in your body if you're not throwing off your dog carps, you may look and say, whoa, why do I have these scars here? Well, because the scars are sort of similar to what Christ has. Second question, and we may have talked about this already, why, this is, I, I love this question, and if you never bring it up in eschatology, well, then I'm bringing it up now. We as Christians and Catholics believe there are two judgments. So the first judgment is when you die, your soul will be judged, and you'll be sent to heaven, hell, or purgatory. Then there's the general judgment, where you'll be judged with all of the risen humanity. There'll be no purgatory, you go to heaven or hell. Um, why is that necessary if we believe the judgment is not going to be different than the first one? It's not like, oh, mistrial, sorry. We've got to try you again. Why is it? Why are there two judgments? Because sin affects us uh, individually and uh, 
universally. Okay, you're on the right path. Ratzinger gives a great argument for this, which we may have talked about already. Yes. Okay. And, uh, isn't there also an aspect of, I mean, probably like great rejoicing and joy as well as justice involved in this? I agree, correct. I think that's, that will be rejoicing in people's glory. One other shot, and I'll give you the answer. So what Ratzinger says is this. And he makes, he connects it to something else. We're going to connect it because you're going to show why I'm trying to talk about this. That when we die, all right, we're judged according to our life on earth. The ways that we love, the ways that we sin, the ways that we fulfill the commands of the virtuous life. But what happens is, so here's, here's your life, here's your death. But... The results of your actions continue to perdure after you die, bearing fruit for good or for evil. And so the last judgment, the judgment doesn't change, but you are going to be able to see how the good seed or the evil seed that you planted continues to affect people and bear fruit. Now, will that maybe make your glory greater, or your punishment, or your alienation more severe? Possibly. I mean, think of it. St. Francis of Assisi died, what, 700 years ago? He's still bearing fruit. I mean, he's made some great investments. He's still get catching a return, and the effect he's had on people. So when Francis was judged, everybody's like, hey, Francis, you're here. Whoa, great, awesome, everybody's clapping. And the last judgment, the amount of people that he affected, that's why you have the last judgment. His glory will be magnified. But think of evil people. That's what I think is interesting. Hitler is one that's predominant, we think, of course. And that the evil he did, yeah, he's judged on it. But look at the evil effects that still continue to perdure after his death. Now, granted, I think that the evil effects tend to not be as great as the good effects. Genghis Khan did some terrible stuff. Attila the Hun. Do we still see it playing out a lot today? Maybe in ways we don't see, maybe in Eastern uh, Oriental cultures. But yet, the evil effects do not perdure as much. They don't bear as much fruit, which I think is very hopeful. But this is, though, the reason that Ratzinger gives for the assumption of Mary. Can y'all make the connection? So he says, Mary was assumed into heaven bodily, sharing the resurrection, because there was no guilt from her sinful actions to, in a certain sense, tire down to earth. And so he's using this as sort of a metaphor, but that somehow when we sin, particularly we hurt other people, there's guilt that remains, that needs to be made up for. This is your purgatorio. But it connects us to other people. It sort of weighs us down so we can't float to heaven as it were. But Mary had no guilt. She didn't hurt anybody. And so she, the earth, he says, the earth couldn't contain her. The earth couldn't hold her. And so she would have been, do I have that quote here? So she would have been, oh uh, yeah. The guilt which goes on because of me is part of me. Reaching as it does deep into me, it is part of my perfect abandonment to time. 
whereby human beings really do continue to suffer on my account and which therefore still affects me. Incidentally, this enables us to grasp the interconnection between the dogmas of Mary's freedom from sin and assumption into heaven. Mary is fully in the Father's house since no guilt came forth from her to make people suffer. So Mary was assumed into heaven and did not have to suffer purgatory, which Ratzinger says is still unresolved guilt, a suffering which continues to radiate because of guilt. Purgatory means then suffering to the end that one is left behind on earth. Guilt on earth and in time. So Mary was assumed because she had no sin or guilt to tie her to earth and time. It's an interesting way of perceiving this. And so purgatory is that, that state of purification in Christ where over time, of course, the guilt is, is removed because as people die and the effects of our sin, entropy sort of takes over and it doesn't affect us as much. So earth couldn't hold us. It also shows, you know, that entrance. I, 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 have I discussed the prodigal son in heaven, hell, and purgatory? I think that's the best. If y'all ever want a way to discuss heaven, hell, and purgatory, my opinion, that's the best. Heaven is the Father's house, and we are all welcome there. The prodigal son goes and sins. He alienates himself from the Father's house by his own free choice. But he comes back, and he's welcomed back into the Father's house. But does the Father say, just come on in? Smell like a pig filthy, probably got some venereal diseases. Come on in. No. What does he do? <coughs> Go get cleaned up. Ring. Ring, Ring. Sandals. Coat. That's purgatory. Before you can go in, you've got to be cleaned up a little bit. You've got to get in. We're happy to have you. But you've got to be cleaned up so you can go to the party. So that's purgatory. Makes perfect sense to me, at least. What about the older son? The older, if you look at catechism, the catechism says that hell is the state of permanent self-exclusion from heaven. So, yeah, we deserve hell because of the choices we make, but we exclude ourselves. So here's the older son. To heck with you, I'm not going into the father's house because of my resentment, my comparison, whatever. But basically, I don't want to be in the same house, in the same party, with my brother who I do not like, who's a jerk. So how many of you have ever been to a party or a gathering where there's someone there that you do not like? And what do you do during that party? You avoid them constantly. You're trying to, there's over there, you're always like looking at the back, are they sticking up on me? Am I having a conversation with this person? Is that a fun party to be at? No. So imagine for all eternity, Heaven is the big party, and there's that jerk that you don't like that you're going to avoid for all eternity. No, it's not a fun party. So y'all got to make up before you go in. Because if you don't, then it's, 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 it's a bad party. You ruin it for everybody because people can sense the tension. But you're the one who's choosing it. You're the, he has a the younger son probably has a, well, come on in, brother, I'm back. I don't smell like a pig anymore. But it brings back, I think, this idea of how important freedom is and our choice to love others and to make communion with others and how the Lord respects it. He does not force us either way.
to be able to either love or not love, to accept love, not accept love, we can or we can't. So anyhow, those are just some reflections. Uh, we will talk about kind of wrapping things up on Wednesday of just different ideas for communicating it, particularly in a pluralistic society. If you all have any questions or comments, and then uh, just my suggestion is I gave you those, what, 11, 12, 13 things. There will be no questions outside of those, even though it's pretty comprehensive. Those are the essential things. If you have any questions, you can let me know. But does this work? Are we good? Any questions, comments? All right, party time. Are we going to do handwritten, or are you just going to tell us bring laptops or something? What do you all normally do? Well, a lot of professors in the moving more toward laptops. I, 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 I am old school, so actually I prefer writing. How many of you in here would prefer laptops? Raise your hand. How many of you prefer writing? Okay. I, let me think about it. I'll let you know Wednesday. My chances are I will let you do either. Uh, but I would like, though, that you write it in a Word format so that I can print it up and, and grade it. By, I, I find it's easier for me to, when I look at your little essays, I can say, ah, I like this or I don't like this. But if I'm going to actually look over it, I want to write things down, um, so that be easy. Unless you send it to me via PDF, then I might be able to do it on my iPad. So, like, if you could take it and then convert it to a PDF, do y'all know how to do that? Y'all are smart enough. Yeah, save as PDF and then send me the PDF so that I can edit it on my iPad. That would be helpful. I just want to. I don't. I don't want it to type to edit. I want to be able to write to edit and make comments. Reds, circling things, xing things out. All right, y'all, so uh, let's go out party. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and it shall be, or without end. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, Peter, could you do me a favor? Could I, could you send me a copy of this class? Of course. People have been asked.